Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of B-Side. And welcome back to B-Side. I'm Tom here, your host for today. And in today's podcast, I'm going to be taking a look at Back to the Future Part 2. That was our movie this week. And I'm going to be looking at um, the work of Jean Baudrillard, the, the French philosopher, and uh, talk about how the father figure in Back to the Future 2 is a construction and the making of that which was never there. Give you a rundown of how this B-side is going to pan out. What I'm going to do is start by talking about Baudrillard and his philosophy, go through his most famous book, Simulacra and Simulation, and then talk about that in relation to um, hyperreality and various Baudrillard concepts. From there, we're going to go into um, the idea of simulation and simulacrum and how uh, representation works when the sign and what it's representing are divided. And then we're going to connect that to Back to the Future Part 2 and a little bit of Back to the Future Part 1. You sort of necessarily have to do that when talking about Back to the Future Part 2. And how this relates to the time machine and especially how it relates to the construction of father figures. And so we're going to end on, on that. I'm going to be drawing from, obviously, Baudrillard and the scholar Randy Leist, who was mentioned on the Talking Pictures Trivia podcast. So let's jump into it. In this B-side, I'm going to argue that Back to the Future Part 2 is about the construction of father figures and the making of that which was never there. What I argue is that Marty, played by Michael J. Fox, uses time travel to construct the father figure he wants, which is the father figure that, in fact, was never real. This argument mirrors the argument made by the scholars I mentioned in the podcast and I just mentioned now, Randy Last, L-A-I-S-T, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce that, and Last sees the time machine in all three films in terms of Jean Baudrillard, who I also just mentioned, and Baudrillard's concept of the hyper-real. Jean Baudrillard's, his dates are 1929 to 2007, and he was a, a post-structuralist French philosopher. He's written at least 40 books and a lot of articles um, and as I said before, his 1981 book, Simulacra and Simulation, is his most famous. The argument from Simulacra and Simulation is that our current media-saturated society has replaced the real, or replaced reality, with symbols and signs, and our experience of reality is a simulation of reality, not the thing itself. Therefore, since media allows all meaning to be malleable, 
There is no meaning, no true mooring, to which many of this could be bound, to which ideas, truth, reality could be bound. That stuff has become unmoored. Rather, what we see is that reality is made of symbols, excuse me, or simulacrum that populate the world and our consciousness without actually needing or having a reality out of which it is spawned. During the Gulf War, Baudrillard argues that the war is not quote-unquote real, but made up of our impressions of the war, a product of the media coverage of Desert Storm, Desert Shield. Uh, And and this media coverage scripts reality through a collection of symbols. And those symbols could be the names of missiles, for example, um, the, the names that we give to the enemy's missiles or the enemies themselves, and that these symbols get divorced. So you, you might have a, a type of rocket, and the rocket is given a name. Baudrillard talks about this. But we don't really know what the rocket looks like. Um, we might see an image of it, but it becomes a, a sort of symbol of the war that's disconnected from the experience or the reality of the war that servicemen and women have, and other people on the ground have in regards to the war. It becomes, in a sense, an unreal war. Now, Baudrillard is not saying the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, didn't literally happen. Of course, it literally happened. What he is saying is that we who experienced it or saw it on TV, I did see it on TV, I think, but I was very, very young, that we don't have a real experience of it. What we have instead is kind of a false version of the war drawn from this kind of media. Now, as Baudrillard writes in the opening of Simulacra and Simulation, quote, the simulacrum is never what hides the truth. It is the truth that hides the fact that there is none. The simulacrum is true. All right, that's confusing. So what does this mean? So if we dive further into his work, Baudrillard discusses Western faith, that Western faith becomes engaged in this wager or representation, that a sign could refer to the depth of meaning, that a sign could be exchanged for meaning, and that something could guarantee this exchange. God, of course. But what if God himself can be simulated? That is to say, can be reduced to the signs that constitute faith. Then the whole system becomes weightless, is no longer itself anything but a gigantic simulacrum. Not unreal, but a simulacrum. That is to say, never exchanged for the real, but exchanged for itself in an uninterrupted circuit without reference or circumference. End quote. What simulacrum is, then, is a sign without referent in a system of exchange, which never includes the referent. I want to go through a few more terms to possibly help clear up Baudrillard's philosophy before examining how um, the scholar we're working with applies it to Back to the Future. Uh, First, we have representation. Representation is this idea that the sign equals the real or something real in the world. It is maybe the case that the real is, is metaphysical, like, for example, God, but it imagines a real that could be 
posited, something actually out there in the physical or metaphysical worlds. My way of working through this idea is uh, like through the Catholic mystery of the Eucharist, which through transubstantiation becomes the literal body of Christ. And so now we have this sort of representative bread through this, this miracle of the Eucharist becomes the real. And so the symbol and the real fall onto each other. And so um, the, the sort of the exchange occurs in the miracle of transubstantiation when bread and wine become body and blood of Christ. Simulation, on the other hand, negates the value of the sign as equaling the referent. Simulation would see this as false. You, you need a referent. Otherwise, the symbolism doesn't work too well, right? I mean, if you have a, a symbol that doesn't stand for something else, it's not really a symbol, or at least it's not a symbol that we think of. So simulation would see this as false, right? As I just said, you need a referent, otherwise symbolism, it, it just doesn't, it, it falls apart. Simulation takes on the representation. It envelops it, and a new divorced bubble of representation becomes the simulacrum. So that's really confusing. So let's see if we could, um, we could look at an image, something like that, in terms of something Baldiari, Baldrian, excuse me, actually were, uh, actually writes. So this is what what he writes. Quote: The image is the reflection of a profound reality. It masks and denatures a profound reality. It masks the absence of a profound reality. It has no relation to any reality whatsoever. It is its own pure simulacrum. Now, end quote. Now, here's a, another quote from Baudrillard. Quote, In the first case, the image is a God appearance. Representation is of the sacramental order. In the second, it is an evil appearance. It is, it is of the order of maleficence. In the third, it plays at being an appearance. It is the order of sorcery. In the fourth, it is no longer of the order of appearance, but of simulation. End quote. All right, so that is very confusing, of course. Um, but what I get from this, from what he's writing here, is that simulacrum ends up being a collection of simulations that are divorced from reality. So typically we get a symbol that stands for something, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we can use that symbol to link us back to reality in, in some meaningful way. However, in the case of, let's say, the Iraq War, the symbols were given do not represent reality. This is, again, not to say reality doesn't exist or that the events that spawn this endeavor, this problem, this philosophical speculation, however you want to call it, that those things do exist, they're in the world, they're just not part of this circuit of representation. That what media does is divorces representation from reality, not link it up. 
So let's see if I could apply this outline to Back to the Future. In Back to the Future 2, Marty time travels to the year 2015 and visits the Cafe 80s, this nostalgic cafe that tries to recreate the 1980s. So the cafe reflects a time, a true time period that has a culture, it has music, it has clothing, etc. However, the cafe masks the true nature of the 1980s by distilling a decade of events and cultural icons into a single setting. When we're in the cafe 80s, those of us who were living in the 80s, though I will say I don't really remember it very well. I was, I was quite young. Um, but those of us living in, in any era, right? If, if you were in high school in the 90s or the 2000s and you look back, if you were to look at one room designed to be a, a nostalgic experience, you would say that that room is not necessarily capturing the experience, that that room as a, a sort of medium of exchange between the past, in the case of the Cafe 80s, the 1980s, a decade, and you, the, the person entering the Cafe 80s, or in this case, Marty McFly entering the Cafe 80s, that the media itself is creating a sort of false reality. Um, in the case of Back to the Future Part 2, it's a lovely reality. We see Ronald Reagan swing onto a television and take someone's order um, while fighting, I think, with the Ayatollah at one point. I don't remember quite, but I think that's what happens. And it's very good natured, you know, as fights with the Ayatollah tend to be. I don't know. Um, but then we see um, Michael Jackson taking, taking an order. And I can imagine for somebody in 2015, um, with the history that has gone on since then, that that might be a strange experience. But even beyond that, Michael Jackson is himself um, a media creation. He's something that is completely constructed by the media. Yes, he's real. He had a mother and a father and a, and a history and a biography. But what we know of him and what the Cafe 80s highlights is not the the person for whom this representation stands in, but a media creation that has, let's say, swallowed up the original, right? That the original is now divorced and that the simulation is creating its own world and that we're interacting with just that simulation. Now, let's jump back into a, a quote from Baudrillard. Here we go. Quote, when the real is no longer what it was, nostalgia assumes its full meaning. There's a plethora of myths of origin and of signs of reality, a plethora of truth, of secondary objectivity and authenticity, escalation of the true, of lived experience, resurrection of the figurative, where the object and substantive have disappeared panic-stricken production of the real and of the referential parallel to and greater than the panic of material production, this is how simulation appears in the phase that concerns us, a strategy of the real, of the neo-real, and the hyper-real, end quote. Okay, so that's a big long quote. Um, 
And so we get right there in the quote, obviously, nostalgia. When the real is no longer what it was, nostalgia assumes its full meaning. <laughs> so again, we get back to the Cafe 80s. It is a, a business that is trading on nostalgia. Uh, Michael Jackson is now somebody who takes your order, as is Ronald Reagan. They're not presidents or pop stars or both, and I guess in the case of Reagan. They are friendly waiters, icons of an era long by. Myth and origin take over. Michael Jackson is not a person. It is easier and probably more accurate to talk about him as a myth. I'd like the phrase, a plethora of truth, of secondary objectivity and authenticity. I find this really intriguing. So a plethora of truth. So this stuff, this kind of Michael Jackson isn't a, a flesh and blood person anymore. He's a myth. He's a god. He's something divorced from the physical as we know it. And yet it's truth. It's a lot of truth of secondary objectivity and authenticity. So it's interesting because it seems as if this media creation that we are dealing with is in its own way, I think Baudrillard would say, true. It has a certain type of authenticity. And it's if the Cafe 80s does its job right, it can represent the 1980s, not represent the 1980s in the sense of it stands in for the 1980s. In a way, a, a painting of someone might represent that person very accurately in the sense that it looks like that person. The truth here is not so much that. The truth is that it generates nostalgia meaning the simulation works. It resonates with people who enter the simulation or bear witness to the simulation. Now, later on in the quote, he says, a panic-stricken production of the real and of the referential, parallel to and greater than the panic of material production. This is how simulation appears in the phase that concerns us. So I think what he means by this is that the, the real, in this case, the panic-stricken production that generates the real is part of this kind of competitive media climate. Um, I'm saying media a lot, but you can think of a, a story in the news, in politics or whatnot, that the you know mainstream press or this kind of uh, corporate press is covering. And that there is this sort of need to generate a narrative and the need to generate a reality that is consumable, that people want to chow down on. And so I think that's what he means by the kind of the panic-stricken production of the real, right? That it is actually, he's actually talking about how this media system generates a, a, a narrative that may or may not have something to do with the truth. So now I want to jump into um, Baudrillard's concept of what he calls the hyper-real. So for Baudrillard, the postmodern world is hyper-real. That is, entertainment, information, and communication technologies provide experiences more consumed than the experience of the everyday. 
right? The, the world that is quote unquote real. So what do I mean by this? So I'll give this example. And I think uh, Baudrillard also gives this example, though I don't remember exactly if he does. Maybe I got it from someone else. But anyway, we have the example of Disneyland. Now in Disneyland, it joins all European countries together into a single space. So if you go to the Disneyland park and I think Disneyland is in Florida, Disney World is in California. I, I've been to both and I, I can't get them straight. But in Disneyland, all these European countries are together in a single space. And you can walk from one to the other without a lot of difficulty. Uh, you can go from, you know, countries that are hundreds of thousand miles apart in an afternoon, less than an afternoon. You can experience those countries' cultures, kind of undifferentiated culture, yet you can do it without the hassle of passports um, or the irritation of having to work with an unknown language. Um, it's also going to be more probably culturally pure, right? If you want to learn about um, beer halls or um, German music, you probably don't want to go to Berlin. I mean, maybe you do, but if you go to Berlin, there's going to be a lot of American influence there. There's going to be a lot of pop music playing in the clubs that you, you probably recognize. Uh, American movies might be popular there. The, you know, whatever, the, the 19th, 18th century culture of Berlin or of Germany more broadly, or the German states, if we're talking about the 18th century, it's probably easier to experience that in a Disneyland simulation because they can push away all of those um, vestiges of uh, international culture, uh, culture from different countries that have glommed onto Germany, that have gotten in the way of traditional German culture, and they could just present it to you. And, you know, maybe German culture traditionally is actually a mixture of different cultures, but we can simplify that. We can make it a lot easier. And so then Disneyland becomes an example of the, the hyper-real. And there, in hyper-reality, nothing is real. So that means the subjects, that includes us, are fragmented, lost, and our ideas of the world, many are many ideas that we think we have, that we think we know, that we think we generate in our little minds here, these ideas go by the wayside because there's something kind of constructed about reality and maybe even constructed about thought. As Baudrillard writes in his 1988 book, America, quote, the subject becomes a pure screen, a pure absorption and reabsorption surface of the influent networks, end quote. So people are watching the screen and are the screen. Now here's a, a quick description of hyperreality from Simulation and Simulacra. So there he says a hyperreality is a simultaneity of all the functions without a past, without a future, an operationality on every level. I think these descriptions of hyperreality help explain the influence behind uh, scholars like Randy Lost's work on hyperreality in Hollywood. 
In a chapter of his book titled Back to the Future as Baudrillardian Parable, and that is a word to say, Baudrillardian, in this, in this chapter, Last argues that the Back to the Future trilogy shows all of history as being, quote, bound together by its cinematic hyperreality, end quote. Last argues that Doc Brown's DeLorean, quote, is a kind of shuttle that runs back and forth through time and weaves a condition of hyperreality, end quote. Last continues to argue that the fact that each time period begins in the midpoint of a decade is a sign that we are getting something specific in these descriptions, or, or excuse me, not getting something specific in these descriptions, but rather the abstraction of that decade's zeitgeist. You aren't seeing a real version of that time. I kind of mentioned this before when talking about um, media construction and the cafe 80s. But what we're seeing in the, the midpoint and in the Back to the Future trilogy is a simulation of that time period made up of symbols of that time period. And the time period then becomes a collection of symbols. So it simultaneously captures the essence of the 50s, the 80s, the 2010s, the 1880s. But at the same time, it fragments it into these symbols. Even the time machine itself with, with Doc, we see Doc believes that he can travel through time merely to watch famous events, and that, that this time machine is made into a center of simulation. And there's this focusing of the entire world around this one or two people, the person or people in the time machine, driving the time machine, operating the time machine. So the past then becomes a screen a movie divorced from the world that makes the movie, a movie made about the image of the world often captured in movies, right? So we have this kind of doubling. We're watching the time machine almost as camera capturing the world, and we are watching this through a cinematography, through through a camera that is capturing the world for a movie. So, and you can see this a little bit in, in the podcast, or in the podcast, Nick made the point that in the first Twilight Zone episode from the early 1960s, we actually see the same set used in Back to the Future and Back to the Future 2. It has different decorations, but, but there it is. It's the same thing. Um, so the 50 set doesn't capture the time period, but rather it captures the simulacrum of that time period, right? We're using sets that represent the 50s that were taken from, not exactly the 50s, but taken from roughly that time period. So what we're seeing then is a Hollywood version of old Hollywood delivered to you via a Hollywood product. So Marty and Doc, but mostly Marty, kind of stand in for Robert Zemeckis, the director of this film. Um, and Zemeckis here is inventing a simulation of a simulation, and the time machine becomes their camera. So now I want to zoom in on one feature of this hyperreality that I really didn't get to discuss in the podcast, and that is father figures. We tried to, but the conversation didn't really take off, and it the fact that it didn't take off became a, an inspiration for this B-side. Marty is raised by a father who's fairly weak. And I don't mean he isn't masculine or that we should equate masculinity and, and strength or, or something like that. But 
he isn't really a person that demonstrates admirable qualities, right? He doesn't demonstrate those things that Marty needs from, from a parent. We don't admire him. Marty doesn't admire him. Uh, and, and this is in the first Back to the Future in the initial timeline. So we could call this 1985A. Similarly, Biff also lacks a father figure. We learn in Back to the Future Part 2 that he's raised by his grandmother. And in the future, when we meet Biff's grandson, Griff, we never actually meet Griff's father, presumably Biff's son or daughter, um, or excuse me, we don't meet Biff's son or daughter, and we never meet Griff's father. Um, then when Biff does take on the role of a father in the third version of 1985, portrayed in Back to the Future Part Two, this is 1985 C, uh, we see here Biff has married Marty's mom and taken over America, and he has adopted Mar uh, Lorraine and George McFly's children, which includes Marty. And the Biff here as adopted dad is a nightmare of a person, perfectly willing and eager to kill his adopted son, Marty. In this alternative 1985, Biff has murdered George McFly, and Marty must return to the past and save his father. In fact, he's trying to create him in 1985, just as Marty created his dad um, in the first film by interfering in 1955 and making the father figure he needs. Uh, just as Biff recreates himself in Back to the Future Part 2 by, as an old man, going back to young Biff and handing off the sports betting book, allowing young Biff to generate millions of dollars, Marty creates the father who is otherwise absent. He does this accidentally. Uh, we see he, he, by buying the sports book, creates an adoptive father Biff. And he does it in the first movie by creating the the George McFly that he wants and needs. Yet the film, and possibly Marty, employ a version, or employs a version of fatherhood that doesn't actually exist in the film. Instead, Marty makes fathers who he isn't familiar with and from whom he receives no benefit other than the Toyota truck. We can remember from Back to the Future Part 1. It's still the same Marty. George is different, but Marty hasn't been raised by the, the father he needs. He's still been raised by George McFly, 1985, timeline A. He never gets to experience being raised by a person he admires. Marty, who ends Back to the Future Part Two in 1955, he's still the same guy from the first timeline. He never gets to be the the son of the person he creates. So this idea of fatherhood, of stable and necessary patriarchal figures, is itself a simulacrum made up of a false reflection of reality. That's what I'm arguing here. Just as Zemeckis' film creates its own simulacrum by making a film within a film, that is representing a reality composed in older Hollywood productions or of holy ho of an older Hollywood production. So we see this with the Twilight Zone's first episode, Back to the Future Part 2 is like a, a half hour or more than that of the movie is drawn from the first Back to the Future. Yet there's no basis in reality 
for the thing Marty is going for. In Back to the Future 2, the concept of the quote-unquote good father becomes its own simulacrum. All right. Thank you very much for listening. This has been B-Side. <laughs>